Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 2nd, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Melissa and I are on the first stop in our planned summer travel this year, staying the night in Lake City, Florida, only three hours from home, to attend the state chapter of the League of the South's annual conference in the morning. I won't be speaking, but having but I have been asked to provide opening and closing prayers. I will try to make that a memorable experience for them, because they are not they are hardly all Christian identity. Some of them are Christian identity. We were kindly invited to attend the national conference in Alabama later this month, but we cannot break our previous commitments to be in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Arkansas, Louisiana, and elsewhere at the end of the month. We may do our best to attend next year, so long as the invitation stands. We accompanied the Florida chapter of the League of the South in New Orleans last month, and we were impressed with the character of their members, many of whom are identity Christians. Our um, PayPal account was rather abruptly canceled the other day after eight years of using PayPal, which is just, I, I don't know, I sort of expected it a long time ago, but having been there for so long, I really didn't expect it anymore. PayPal canceled our account with no warning and no explanation, and, and we cannot even use any methods to make an inquiry or, or, or feedback or contact or support. They don't want to hear it. They just redirect us to the cancellation page. If you have supported our work in the past or plan or would like to support it in the future, Please see the contact page at Christagenia. The link is all the way at the very bottom of the page for a mailing address or other ways of providing Christagenia with support. Our work at Christagenia is supported exclusively by free, free will donations from our readers and listeners. And without funding, we would, of course, not be able to operate. PayPal, perhaps, if I had to guess, probably provided... 20 to 25% of our funding donations through PayPal and our expenses each month just to stay on the internet are about a thousand dollars a month 900 to a thousand dollars a month just to maintain our servers our websites and all of the related expenses never mind the, the work that we put into producing our content so we sell promotional materials and books and magazines, but they only supplement a small portion of our expenses. And, and right now, we use PayPal to collect our um, magazine royalties, and we can't even collect those. It's only $11 this month, but it's $11. I, I don't know. Um, MadCloud doesn't seem to even have another ROM. Um, Avenue, so I'll probably have to set up a PayPal address perhaps in Melissa's name in the future, and perhaps we could use that, but I won't put another PayPal button on the website. That I won't do. So we're going to work something out. There are other ways to send us support electronically. There's Bitcoin, 
There's um, Patreon, which we've linked at the very bottom of the front page of the Cliff Christogenia website. We've set up a Patreon account, and, and a lot of people that produce content on the internet use that. And um, there's Google Wallet, which works pretty well. So, and, and Google Wallet takes a much smaller, I don't think they take any money. I, I've received money through Google Wallet. And Google hasn't even charged a transaction fee, as far as I can remember. I don't think they do. So that's like the best way. PayPal is just a scam. And, and um, what, well, a treacherous Jewish scam at that. I, I mean, I don't, they, they've canceled a lot of other people's accounts. They've canceled um, Mike Delaney's accounts at ProThing, Carolyn Yeager's accounts they canceled, claiming she was profiting from the Holocaust. At least she got an answer. I didn't even get an answer. I don't, I don't even know how I could get an answer from them. I, I don't know if it's worth the time to try to get an answer from them. It, it probably isn't. And that they've canceled the PayPal accounts of other people like them. So it, it's happened often in the past. I guess it just took them a while to catch up to me. That's all I could say. Tomorrow night, we will be at this League of the South conference all day tomorrow, and, and I'm not sure if we will have um, opportunities for social interaction with, with, with some of these people. I would like to use them, of course, for the purpose of witnessing our Christian identity message. And, and if we do, we're going to... Um, we're not going to turn them down, so... I don't know how late we will be tomorrow night, but we have our servers scripted, I hope. I mean, you never know that this stuff works, right? But I've done it before. We have our servers scripted tomorrow night to play four parts in a series from Arthur Lee, a new series titled Quest for Destiny. And, and that should really be interesting. And I pray that not only did I write the scripts correctly so that the, the, the programs play correctly, but I pray that the people who listen to our usual podcasts enjoy that as well. I am certain that you will. Now we are going to present part five of Clifton Emma Heiser's series of special notices to all who deny to seed line. And I've been prefacing these with little beats of my own and I'm going to continue to do that. After part four of my presentation in the series, I saw some of the buzz in social media and various crybabies are complaining that I quote-unquote attacked Eli James or Joseph November. That's funny because I was only responding to claims that Eli himself had made that I never addressed his silly crumbs paper, as he had bragged that I could never refute it. He really is arrogant. He packages deceit and labels it as irrefutable simply because for six years I ignored it, not thinking it to be worth my attention. So after six years I get tired of his lies, I take this opportunity and I point out a few serious problems with Eli's paper. But not once did the crybabies, who are now whining about that, offer to discuss any of the issues. It's the issues that are important here. 
Rather, they attack me for, quote-unquote, attacking Eli. Even when I was able to post screenshots of Eli's vain boasting that I have not refuted his paper. A paper for which my entire ministry stands as a refutation. All my work refutes that subterfuge, that trash that he's trying to promote within Christian identity. So am I really attacking Eli? Or am I just answering his boast that I never refuted his stupid crumbs paper? This is the grade school mentality of my adversaries. And it represents why they will never amount to anything. In fact, the fools who are complaining the loudest have been supposed Aryan Nations members and Identity Christians for 20 or so years and they have not a single worthwhile accomplishment of their own. They cannot discuss the issues with me because they will be put to shame. They are a disgrace to Richard Butler's legacy. And it's only certain Aryan Nations members who are doing this. Many Aryan Nations members are actually friendly to me and agree with my cause in many respects. While British Israel, or BI, was wrong about a lot of things, even that did not really stand for bastard identity. Likewise, CI does not stand for compromise identity. The whole Eli James crowd is insanely stupid. They prove their stupidity by complaining about what I am saying in these podcasts because it proves that they listen to me and they still do not agree. Why do they listen to me at all? Evidently, because they do not have an original thought of their own. Here I will prove how stupid they are once again. First, Eli James, as a central portion of this crumbs paper, his central, his central premise in the paper, Eli James has taken Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 entirely out of context and he applies it to non-Adamic races. There, in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3, it says in part, it is said to Abraham by Yahweh, and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curses thee and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, Eli himself will tell you that the word earth in Genesis chapters 6 through 9 refers only to the land of Noah and the land of the race of Adam and not to the entire planet. Of course, the same word translated as earth in these passages in the King James Version was indeed translated as land on a thousand other occasions in the King James Version. So Eli declares in his crumbs paper, in part, and I quote, Genesis 12, 1-3 declares that the non-white races will be blessed by Abraham's descendants. But is that really the case? Eli then jumps through linguistic hoops to somehow prove that the word Families, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, refers to every other species of animal on a planet 
and therefore to non-white races of people as well as animals. However, when we go back one chapter to Genesis chapter 11, we see the account of the Tower of Babel and the distribution of the Adamic race when Yahweh God had separated the people. It says, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And Yahweh scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, or all the land, if you will. These people, who were one, were described in Genesis chapter 10 as the descendants of Noah, where it concluded that these are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. So, the dividing in Genesis chapter 11 is the dividing of the nations listed in Genesis chapter 10. And they were all sons of Noah. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, we see a reflection of this. We see it reflecting back to what had happened or what was described in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. And it says, When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance. When he separated the sons of Adam, so we see that the nations that he divided are the sons of Adam. He set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. Where it says in Genesis chapter 10 verse 32, these are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations, in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. They are the families being referred to where it says in Genesis chapter 12, and in thee, meaning Abraham, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. None of this has anything to do with niggers. None of this has anything to do with Chinamen. None of this has anything to do with the other races or with animals. This is why I have asserted that there are so many basic premises wrong with Eli James's crumb paper that it is not much more trouble to address than the paper it's written on. It's not worth the paper it's written on. It is much more trouble to address than it's worth because every premise of the paper is wrong. Eli tries hard in his crumbs paper to convince us that the crumbs of the account of Christ and the Canaanite woman represent blessings and that they prove that the non-white races can receive blessings from God. Citing Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 and the story of the Canaanite woman, Eli says, quote unquote, from all of this scriptural evidence, it is eminently clear that non-whites can receive blessings from Yahweh. And then he says, It is also very clear that Yahshua can give the crumbs to anyone he pleases. Here is another problem with Eli's premise. Where does it say that God purposely drops crumbs under the table of the children so that the dogs may eat? Where does it say that God purposely drops crumbs under the table of the children? 
so that the dogs may eat. Where? Here is the passage from Matthew chapter 15. But he, meaning Christ, answered and said to the woman, It is not me to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith, or great is thy belief. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Where she says, the dogs eat of the crumbs from their master's table. The woman only makes a general observation about dogs. And, at most, her only admittance is that she herself is a dog and not on the level of Christ or the people of God. Eli wants to make a theological statement out of this in reference to dominion theology, but there is not one shred of evidence that the woman had such a thing in mind, and the words are the words of the woman and are not a doctrine from God. Eli has a penchant for making doctrines out of the words of men, the king of Assyria in the book of Jonah being another example. Where Christ responded, great is thy faith, by faith he was only referring to the woman's belief that he could heal her daughter and her admission that she was a dog. It does not make her a Christian. And then he only told her to go thy way, as it is recorded in Mark chapter 7. So the woman makes the general observation that dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Eli makes a doctrine out of it based on the false assumption that crumbs are purposely distributed by God. However, Christ was talking about the bread of the children and not the bread eaten by the master himself. Dogs may be blessed by crumbs dropped under the table by the children. But should we really look at scripture, as Eli does, from the perspective of the dogs? Why don't we look at scripture as we should, from the perspective of the children for whom the scripture was written? When I was a child, my father never liked it when we dropped our food on the floor. Mom would ask for the thousandth time, why can't you sit up and eat with your head over the table? She would yell, keep your food over your plate. And when we dropped food on the floor, it was something like, what are you, a slob? Or am I raising a pig? Etc., etc., etc. It was never a good thing to drop crumbs on the floor, especially around the time that mom had just mopped and waxed it. And purposely throwing our food on the floor to the dog was always a sin we would get our booty slapped for that. That is why the crumbs, that is what the crumbs are, which fall on the floor. The crumbs which fall on the floor, they are sins. They might bless the dog, but the child is very likely going to get his ass beat. When we inadvertently drop crumbs on the floor, the dogs are blessed. When we carelessly give away what belongs to our own children, or when we as children carelessly toss away the blessings that our God has given to us, we sin. And from their own perspective, the other races are blessed. 
But that does not make it any less sinful. In our sin, we cast our blessings to the dogs. That is how we should look at the parable as a warning, as Christ had originally said, that it is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. As I have said before, Eli James would rip the bread out of the hands of the children, cast it to the dogs, and call it crumbs. That is precisely what he is trying to do in his crumbs paper, characterizing the sins of the children of God as blessings from God. He is taking the perspective of the dogs and creating false doctrine for the children. With this, we will commence with our presentation of Clifton Emmerheiser's special notice to all who deny 2C line, number five. And Clifton begins with much the same message because this is important. Getting this race issue correct, this is important. We cannot screw this up because we don't have a second chance. Clifton says, again, again, I would remind everyone who is not aware of it, we are in a war. This war has been going on now for about 7,000 years. This war is between the genetic children of Yahweh and the genetic children of Satan. This war is between the white children of Adam and Eve and the offspring of Satan through Cain, whom we now know today as Jews. Yes, the Jews are the literal progeny of Satan walking about today in shoe leather. The Jews of today and the scribes and Pharisees of Messiah's time should not be confused with the true tribe of Judah. John Lightfoot understood this when he wrote in his commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Hebraica, volume 3, page 334, in reference to John 8, 37, chapter 8, verse 37. And before I, uh, before I continue, I have to address one line in Clifton's paper where he said the offspring of Satan through Cain, whom we now know today as Jews. And while that is true, I interpret the seed of the serpent more broadly than Clifton may, or at least than Clifton did at this time. To me, the serpent represented an entire tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which we have spoken about earlier in this series, and which we will speak about at greater length, even later this evening and as the series commences. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the serpent being one member, ostensibly, of this race of fallen angels, who we are told in the apocryphal literature, such as the writings of Enoch found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, went out and corrupted 
themselves as well as the creation of God. To me, the entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the seed of the serpent. I believe that Cain also is of the seed of the serpent, but that it is much greater already than simply Cain. So, to me, the story is even more complex than simply including the descendants of Cain, even though it is true, without doubt, that the Jews and the Arabs have all, in part, descended from Cain. That's without doubt. That, that's, um, that is traceable in the scripture through the Kenites and the Rephaim to the Canaanites and into the Edomites as well as the Ishmaelites and into the Jews and many of the Arabs today. And if the Arabs of today aren't descended from Ishmael, they're certainly descended from other branches of the Canaanites besides those which had mingled with Ishmael. So Clifton, quoting John Lightfoot, the great 17th century Hebraist. John Lightfoot was actually an expert at Hebrew and Aramaic for his time without having been under the tutelage of Jews, ostensibly. When John Lightfoot grew up and studied, there were no admitted Jews in England. There may have been Murano Jews in England, and I'm certain that there were. There were Murano Jews posing as Christians so that they could stay in London and conduct their mercantile business. But there were no open Jews in England when John Lightfoot was studying in English universities, and therefore he learned Hebrew and Aramaic without any open assistance or open learning from Jews. And, and that's pretty much a, um, a circumstance of the history in which he grew up. So Clifton quoting John Lightfoot on John chapter 8, verse 37, from this whole period it is manifest that the whole tendency of our Savior's discourse is to show the Jews that they are the seed of that serpent that was to bruise the heel of the Messiah. Or else what could that mean? Verse 44. Ye are of your father the devil, but this, ye are the seed of the serpent. Let's now take a look at John chapter 8, verse 38. While we do, and these are Clifton's words, while we do, let's remember that in verse 41, the Jews were being very defensive of the implication of being born of fornication. Being born of fornication implies being born of an impure racial union. Defining Strong's number 4202, which I believe is pornase or fornication. Dr. Spiros Zodiades, in his New Testament Word Study Dictionary on page 1201, says, in John 8:41, we be not born of fornication means we are not spurious children born of a concubine, but are the true descendants of Abraham. And Clifton adds the note, 
Sure, the Arabs can claim Abraham as their father. And here we will interrupt Clifton momentarily once more and say only that certain Arabs, especially the Nabatahian Arabs, who are evidently descendants of Ishmael in part, only certain Arabs could make a legitimate claim to have Abraham for a forefather. Otherwise, most Arabs may be mixed with at least some Israelite or Edomite ancestry in one way or another, but because of all the race mixing of the last three millennia, even that is difficult to quantify, and in the end they are only a race of bastards, just like the Jews. And Clifton continues and says, we know also that the Jews of Messiah's day had absorbed Edomite blood and therefore could claim both Abraham and Isaac as their fathers. The Shelahite Judahites could even claim an affinity with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, but that doesn't make them of the true tribe of Judah because they were Canaanite bastards. Now let's read that passage, John 8, 39, with that in mind. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Yahshua said unto them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. And Clifton says, verse 39 really clears up the whole matter. The Holy Bible New Century Version puts it very nicely, in other words, speaking of their translation. In verse 39, they answered, Our father is Abraham. Jesus said, If you were really Abraham's children, you would do the things Abraham did. And Clifton says that a commentary on the Holy Bible edited by the Reverend J.R. Dumelo on page 789 remarks on John 837 in this manner. Their desire to kill Christ, the promised seed of Abraham, proved that they were not children of Abraham, but of Satan. And actually, we would say that many nations were the promised seed of Abraham. And that was fulfilled long before the time of Christ. Clifton continues, The Adams Clark, the Adam Clark commentary on the Bible, abridged by Ralph Earl, agrees with Dr. Lightfoot on John 8.37, as quoted here above, my word has no place in you, or this doctrine of mine has no place in you, quoting Adam Clark's commentary. You hear the truths of God, but you do not heed them. The word of life has no influence over you. And how can it when you seek to kill me because I proclaim this truth to you? From what is here said, it is manifest says Dr. Lightfoot, in other words, Adam Clark is quoting John Lightfoot, that the whole tendency of our Savior's discourse is to show the Jews that they are the seed of the serpent, which was to bruise the heel of the Messiah. Or else what could that mean? In verse 844, you are of your father the devil, i.e., or, or, or in other words, you are the seed of the serpent. And Clifton says, maybe at this point, it would be well to consider Lightfoot's history. For this we shall go to his commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Hebraica in volume one in the introduction. 
Whitefoot was one of the many earnest Christian scholars of his time, master of St. Catherine Hall in Cambridge. He possessed the classical learning of those days. He was at home in Latin and Greek, and he was a master not only of classical Hebrew, but also of Mishnaic Hebrew, the Hebrew of the Mishnah, and the Aramaic of the Talmud. We are reminded of his elder contemporary, Lancelot Andrews, one of the translators of the King James Version of the Bible, who composed prayers for himself in Hebrew. And supposedly, Lightfoot gained this learning in Hebrew and Aramaic before the Jews were admitted to England, before synagogues were allowed, or, or yeshivas, or Jewish schools of learning, were allowed to exist in England. That didn't happen until, I believe, the 1650s, in the time of Cromwell. And Lightfoot was born in the early 1700, in, in the early 17th century, in the early 1600s. Aside from Lightfoot's scholarly writings and productive teaching, he took part in the Westminster Assembly, which sat from 1643 to 1649. He, belo he belonged to the Erastian Party, and that party is named for a Swiss theologian, Thomas Erastus, evidently to describe a doctrine which Erastus himself did not really hold. He belonged to the Erastian Party, favoring an established church, and this is reflected in the present work in his letter of thanks to Gilbert, who Lightfoot says is by divine providence Archbishop of Canterbury, primate of all England. Lightfoot lived in troubled times. Born in the last days of Queen Elizabeth, he was a boy when the King James Version was published. He sat in the Westminster Assembly while the long parliament beheaded King Charles I then somehow survived the restoration under Charles II, all the while maintaining a real Christian testimony and making an important scholarly contribution to scripture study. From his commentary, one would hardly guess at the turbulent times in which he lived. One point is of interest. In the days of Oliver Cromwell, when Lightfoot was at the height of his powers, the Jews were allowed again in England after 250 years of proscription, meaning prohibition. While Lightfoot was a Puritan and learned in Hebrew and Aramaic without any notable assistance from the Jews, he was a scholar wrapped up in many of the theological debates of the time. But it was not likely that he had much to do with the resettlement of Jews in England. For the most part, that was a political matter ultimately settled by Cromwell, while it was not really ever settled at all. Finally, the English from Cromwell's times simply stopped enforcing the laws proscribing Jews but the matter was never settled. Clifton continues, and he says, From Lightfoot's comments on John 8.37, we can plainly see he understood the Jews were the seed of the serpent of Genesis 3.15. This is the same position as taken by the teachers of two seed line. 
It seems then that Lightfoot understood the tenet of 2C line. But, as Clifton began to criticize Jeffrey Weekly's criticism of 2C line earlier in the series, he says, but Mr. Jeffrey A. Weekly, a fervently caustic anti-seed liner, in his book, The Satanic Seed Line, Its Doctrine and History, on page 15 says, the Satanic Seed Line doctrine was brought into the identity teaching with San Jacinto Capt and Wesley A. Swift. Actually, San Jacinto Capt, quoting Jeffrey Weekly, claimed he had gotten Wesley A. Swift started. In any case, Wesley Swift presented the Seed Line doctrine to Gerald L. K. Smith. From there, Swift got Bertrand Comparé started, and shortly later, San Jacinto Capt introduced William P. Gale to Swift. And Clifton says, I submit that two seed line doctrine has been around for quite a long time and was not the invention of Cap, Swift, Compare, or Gale as Weekly spuriously suggests. And I would like to add that since Clifton wrote this paper, We have found evidence of two sea line teachings in the writings of Justin Martyr, in the writings of Tertullian, and Clifton has located two sea line teachings in the writings of the early Celtic, the Chaldee Church. So put those together with John Lightfoot. And while 2C line has certainly been a persecuted doctrine, it has been around, well, it's been around since Genesis 2, since Genesis 3.15, but it is not new. It did not start with Swift or with Cat or, or with any modern writer. And some of the anti-C liners are simply ignorant. They don't want to know it. Clifton says, now for some quotes from other commentaries on John 8.37. Matthew Henry's commentary, volume 5, page 997. I believe Matthew Henry wrote his commentary in the 18th century. Now Christ overthrows his plea and exposes the vanity of it by a plain and cogent argument. Abraham's children will do the works of Abraham, but you do not do Abraham's works, therefore you are not Abraham's children. The proposition is plain. If you were Abraham's children, such children of Abraham as could claim an interest in the covenant made with him and his seed, which would indeed put an honor upon you, then you would do the works of Abraham. For to those only of Abraham's house, who kept the way of the Lord, as Abraham did, would God perform what he had spoken, according to Genesis chapter 18, verse 19. Now, it may not be entirely clear here that Matthew Henry was speaking of literal children, except for where he said, those of Abraham's house. And Clifton continues, quoting the Interpreter's Bible, volume 8, page 605. And it says, nonetheless, Christ's answer to them is grim indeed. You are not of God. You are of your father the devil. 
and his nature shows itself in you. He was a murderer from the beginning, and you seek to kill me. He has nothing to do with the truth, and true to your blood and ancestry. When and because I tell you the truth, you do not believe it, you resent it and fling it from you. And it's hard to escape the meaning of the phrase there. True to your blood and ancestry. The words of the writers of the Interpreter's Bible. In relation to the Jews being of their father the devil. Again, back to Clifton, he quotes the Peake's commentary on the Bible on page 855. The Jews have described themselves as descendants of Abraham. This leads to a second point. If they were truly Abraham's children, they would resemble their father. But in seeking to kill an innocent man, whose only crime is to speak the truth, they are unlike Abraham as could be. Jesus, or Yahshua, is the Son of God and declares the truth he receives from God. But who can their father be? The charge is repelled with a sneer. They, the Jews, are the children of God. Jesus, it is implied by the Jews, was born of fornication. This slander was current later. Probably it was used in anti-Christian propaganda in John's time and perhaps earlier. But they, the Jews, are not God's children. If they were, they would love his son. No, their father is the devil. That is why they seek to kill and prefer falsehood to truth. And perhaps the authors of these Bible commentaries could not describe exactly how these Jews were not the children of Abraham. But they clearly knew that these Jews were not the children of Abraham. However, today these so-called two-sea liners certainly can, we certainly can describe exactly how the Jews are children of the devil, just as Christ described in Luke chapter 11, that they are of the line of Cain. The Kenites. The Kenites mixed with the Canaanites, and the Canaanites and the Rephaim, and the Canaanites were mixed with the Edomites, and the Edomites infiltrated and took over Judea in the time of Herod. That is how really simple and that is how entirely scriptural and that is how demonstrably historical 2C line is all you have to do is admit that the scripture is true Clifton continues under the subtitle of Weekly's Weak Points and he says in chapter 2 of Jeffrey A. Weekly's booklet the Satanic Seed Line, Its Doctrine and History. He puts together a composition on words found in Genesis 3.6, 3.13, and 4.1. These words are tree, food, desired, took, fruit, eat, beguiled, and new. It will be necessary here to give this chapter a critical review. For some, the conclusions in his research are sadly faulty. Actually, Weekly proves 2C line in many ways rather than disproving it, and you will see what I mean as we go along.
probably not this evening. At this time, we will consider the word tree in his presentation. Eventually, it is hoped that we will cover this entire chapter. It's simply amazing, for Weekly doesn't believe or understand some of his own research. And quoting Weekly, Clifton writes, We will now look at the Satanic Seedline Doctrine as compared to Scripture. Any teaching that we hear should not be accepted or rejected as truth until we have re-examined the Scriptures. This is what the Berians did in Acts chapter 17. So let us now be more noble as the Berians and search the scriptures on this matter. And of course, Weekly implies that he is more noble than two sea liners. A lot of Bible writers love to describe themselves as Berians in this fashion, simply to compliment their readers into accepting their own research. And it's dishonest. Clifton continues, quoting weekly. The first point of the seed line doctrine is that Eve was sexually seduced. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we find, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now, according to the seed liners, this passage is just written with good taste and is really talking about a sexual encounter. Let's see. First, we'll examine some words in this verse. Tree, a tree from its firmness. Hence, wood. Quoting Strong's Concordance. A tree, following the analogy of the verb that the word is derived from, which means to be hard or firm wood, especially of a wooden post, stake, gibbet, and then quoting Jusenius' lexicon, tree, wood, timber, stock, plank, stalk, stick, gallows, to be hung from a tree, and then quoting the theological workbook of the Old Testament edited by R. Layard Harris, this Hebrew word is translated over 100 times in the Old Testament as trees. Wood, timber, sticks, held, stock, staff, gallows, stocks, and plank. From the above, Weekly says, I find it difficult to believe that this tree from which Eve obtained the fruit was anything other than a tree. What a fool. I'll let Clifton answer that. <laughs> and I'll only say, what a fool. Clifton says, I will agree with Mr. Jeffrey A. Weekly that it is paramount we should examine and re-examine the scriptures. And yes, the two sea liners do point to Genesis 3.6 as a sexual encounter with Satan, at least on the part of Eve, I would say with a Satan, with a fallen angel, and they were all Satans. Yes, the word tree, as used in this verse, means a hard, firm, or solid tree, such as wood, timber, stocks, held, stakes, gallows, stock, or plank. As a matter of fact, the counterpart word for this Hebrew word is the Greek word, number 3586, it's the word zulon, and means the same thing. The problem, though, for understanding the trees of Genesis 3 is the Hebrew idiom. George M. Lamza, in his book Idioms in the Bible, explains, 
points out on page 9 that both the tree of knowledge and the tree of life have sexual connotations. In addition, Lambza said this in his introduction, Clifton quoting George Lambza, I chose the King James text from which to pick the idioms quoted in this book, unless otherwise indicated, because the King James text is the most widely used Bible translation in the English-speaking world. Moreover, the King James translators were more faithful to the texts from which they translated into English, making fewer additions and omissions than later English version translators and revisers. They translated many Eastern idioms and metaphors literally, not knowing their true meaning. For instance, you shall handle snakes. They did not know that the word snake refers to an enemy. Beware of dogs was not understood to be beware of gossipers in Semitic languages. Now, I would not agree with all of Lambs's conclusion concerning all of the idioms, but that's all I will say in that regard. Clifton says, so we can observe very quickly, Weekly is taking literally the idioms of Genesis chapter 3, as the King James translators, when they translated many of the Hebrew and Greek idioms in a literal manner. The bottom line is, if one cannot understand the idiom, one cannot understand the Bible in numerous cases. As we go along, you will find that Weekly discovered many idiomatic expressions in various places of his research and refused to accept their idiomatic meanings. He did this mainly because the literal meanings outnumbered figurative meanings. In other words, if the word zulon is used to describe wood 99 times, but really means, say, a race one time, we can't rule out the fact that the word is ever used allegorically or idiomatically. We can't rule that out. Oh, if it says wood here, nine, if it says tree here 99 times and it means a literal tree, it must mean a literal tree every time. Well, that's simply not true. So Clifton writes under the subtitle, Literal Trees or Figurative Trees? Maybe we can find what the tree of knowledge of good and evil is if we first investigate the meaning of the tree of life. In both cases, the word for tree is number 6086, the word ets, meaning literally a firm wooden tree. In the various Bible commentators, Bible commentaries and dictionaries, there are a multitude of ideas on what the tree of life may, might be. It really goes back to Weekly's definition of a wooden tree. As stated before, the counterpart word is the Greek word zulon, and literally means a wooden tree. In Dr. Spiros Zodiades' New Testament Word Study Dictionary, he says this on page 1023 concerning zulon. In Revelation chapter 2, chapter 22, verses 2 and 14, it is conceivable that the tree of life may be an allusion to the cross and could be rendered wood of life. 
I would disagree with that. And, and we'll get to my disagreement and my explanation of the tree of life later this evening. And he's citing the Septuagint in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis 2 verse 9. And Clifton says this makes a lot of sense. In other words, the wooden tree represents the wooden cross, whatever kind of device it might have been, on which our Messiah wrought redemption. And how else do we eat of the tree of life but the, by the partaking of communion? Inasmuch as a few Bible scholars understood it this way, now let's consider some of their comments. And quoting the Nelson's Illustrated Bible Study, Clifton says, under the topic Tree of Life, Adam and Eve's inability to eat from this tree, and I will disagree with that shortly, Adam and Eve's inability to eat from this tree after their sin showed that they failed to gain immortality or eternal life. Because of their sin, they were subject to death and dying. This condition lasted until the coming of Jesus Christ, the second Adam who offers eternal life to all who believe in him. And Clifton qualifies some of that language with notes appropriately. We will further describe the tree of life later on, or at least augment Clifton's description. But here, Nelson's explanation is based on a false premise. Nowhere in scripture does it say that Adam and Eve could not eat from the tree of life. It only warns them at the end of Genesis chapter 3 that they were going to have to grasp onto the tree of life and eat if they were to live forever. That's all it says. Returning to Clifton, Matthew Henry almost identifies the tree of life correctly and J.R. Dumelo almost nails the implications, which we will discuss after Clifton's quotations. Matthew Poole, quoting Matthew Poole's Commentary on the Holy Bible, volume 3, page 1008, that they may have right to the tree of life, to Christ, called before the tree of life, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, by virtue of the promise. For no works of ours will give us a right to purchase of purchase to it and may enter in through the gates into the city. And he's quoting from Revelation chapter 22. Clifton quoting from a commentary on the Holy Bible edited by the Reverend J.R. Dumelo on page 10. The fruit of his perfect obedience and have a right to the tree of life as in Adam all die even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And that's why I say that Dumelo almost nails the implications because he quoted from Paul of Tarsus as an animal die, even though in Christ shall all be made alive from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Matthew Poole almost describes the tree of life correctly where he relates it to Christ, citing Revelation verse chapter 22, verse 2. And I say almost describes it correctly, and I will give my reasons for that shortly. In the meantime, Clifton says, can you now see that weakly in refusing to see the Hebrew idiom is insisting that our Messiah was a wooden tree? Not only was our Savior not a wooden tree, but neither was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
To follow up on the theme of the Tree of Life, let's quote some different passages where it is mentioned. And quoting from 2 Esdras, which is the apocalyptic book of Ezra, and of Ezra, of, of Esdras, 2 Esdras chapter 8. It's in the King James Apocrypha. It's an apocalyptic writing in the Apocrypha, if I have to clarify. 2 Ezra chapter 8, from verse 50. For many great miseries shall be done to them, meaning Israel, that in a later time shall dwell in the world, because they have walked in great pride. But understand now for thyself, and seek out the glory for such as be like thee. For unto you paradise is opened, the tree of life is planted. The time to come is prepared. Plenteousness is made ready. A city is built and rest is allowed. Yeah, perfect goodness and wisdom. To Esther's describing the kingdom of heaven being open to the children of Israel. The Testament of Levi, as it is found in the lost books of the Bible and the forgotten books of Eden, Clifton quoting from chapter 5 from verse 26, and he shall open the gates of paradise, and shall remove the threatening sword against Adam. And he shall give to the saints to eat from the tree of life. And the spirit of holiness shall be on them. And be liars shall be bound by him. And he shall give power to his children to tread upon the evil spirits. And the Lord, Yahweh, shall rejoice in his children, and be well pleased in his beloved ones forever. Then shall Abraham and Isaac and Jacob exult, and I will be glad, and all the saints shall clothe themselves with joy. And now, my children, ye have heard all. Choose, therefore, for yourselves, either the light or the darkness, either the law of the Lord or the works of Belial. We cannot accept the Testament of Levi as being either canonical or divinely inspired, even if it has an appearance of poverty, of, of piety, I do not believe that sword, which we see on the cherub, keeping the way to the garden, I do not believe that was a sword against Adam. I believe that was a sword in Adam's favor, that our race, that the Adamic race, would indeed find their way back to paradise through Christ, but they would nevertheless find it back, Christ himself being a member of that race. Through him, they will find it back. That's what that means. The cherub kept the way to the tree of life, meaning that that was God's assurance that man would find it back. And of course, we see the cherubs on the Ark of the Covenant representing the law, the keeping of the law as the way to life. Clifton says, once we comprehend that Yahshua the Messiah is the tree of life, and we will certainly agree with that shortly, our apprehension is opened up for us, and our understanding comes to life. Notice verse 30 in the above citation from the Testament of Levi speaks of both light and darkness, the very same forces which are at war with each other in our world today. Belial is another name for Satan. These two trees in Eden were not literal wooden trees, but walking, talking, and breathing, metaphorically idiomatic trees representing genetic people. 
The tree of life was Yahshua the Messiah, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil was Belial or Satan. Such family trees are described in Mark chapter 8. And Clifton, quoting from Mark chapter 8, verse 22, and he comes, meaning Christ, and he comes to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. Clifton comments on this and says, It seems this former blind man had better eyesight than the anti-seed liners of today. It is simply amazing as the anti-seed liners of today dance up and down and insist that there is only one seed in Genesis 3.15. And that seed is only one man, Yahshua. It takes two to have enmity, as enmity means mutual hatred. Mutual means given or felt by one another in equal amount. The word for enmity in Genesis 3.15 is the Hebrew word, number 342, and it is also found in Numbers chapter 35, Ezekiel chapters 25 and 35. And in every case, two parties are involved. The only way, therefore, for Genesis 3.15 to be speaking of one seed is if the Redeemer were to hate himself. Can you see now how ridiculous such a premise is that the anti-seed liners promote? They have really backed themselves into a corner on that one. Then they rant and rave that there wasn't anything sexual concerning Eve's seduction, but that it was all a matter of mental seduction. They insist it is all an invention of the two sea liners. To show that, there are others who interpret the seduction of Eve in a sexual manner. Let's refer to the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible. Volume R to Z on page 696. While this publication does not take a stand on the subject one way or the other, at least it points out that this is one of the interpretations. Sexual knowledge. The tree of knowledge is the means to sexual knowledge. The advocates of this interpretation have pointed out that the verb to know occurs frequently as a euphemism for sexual relations. Referring to Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 and Genesis chapter 19 verse 5, which was actually in the story of the men of Sodom who wanted to know the angels. They wanted to have sex with the angels and they were stricken blind as they surrounded the home of Lot. When Adam and Eve acquired the knowledge of good and evil, they recognized their nakedness and experienced feelings of shame. Finally, several parallel passages containing the phrase knowing good and evil can be reasonably interpreted as referring to sexual knowledge. And they're citing Deuteronomy chapter 1, 2 Samuel chapter 19, and the rule of the congregation scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Clifton says, Matthew Poole states on Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39, had no knowledge between good and evil. 
a common description of the state of childhood, as in Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. Clifton says, one unnamed anti-seagliner said this, and I wanted to name this person this evening, but I couldn't find who it was. Most seagliners go wrong at this point by correlating the eating or touching of the fruit of the tree to intercourse. But when Adam received his directions from God, there was no female around for intercourse. So how could these words be made to imply sexual activity? We would only say that this unnamed seedliner was ignorant because there certainly were females around. There was a whole race of fallen angels around, and they were having sex with something, males and females of animals, and corrupting themselves and corrupting God's creation. Now, where does that leave these speculators, meaning two seedliners? It's actually the anti-seedliner that's the speculator, thinking that Adam and Eve were the first physical men, man, man, the first physical man and the first physical woman on the entire planet, without realizing that there was an entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil here, long before Adam. So, all these things can be explained, and they can be explained from Scripture, because that race of fallen angels is described as that serpent in Revelation chapter 12. Clifton says, we will, not, we will next see that this is not speculation on our part concerning the words eating and touching having sexual connotations. And before we get to the conclusion of Clifton's paper, I want to discuss the Tree of Life. Matthew Henry identified the tree of life as Christ himself, but that is not quite correct. Of course, Christ identified himself as a root of Jesse and as the root and offspring of David, as we see in Isaiah chapter 11, Romans chapter 15, and Revelation chapter 22. But even a root and a branch do not make an entire tree. In John chapter 15, Christ told his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. But without me, you can do nothing. In Revelation chapter 22, in the passage to which Matthew Henry had referred, we read in the description of the city of God, that in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The tree of life, bearing twelve fruits, must be an allegory for both Yahshua Christ and his people the vine and the branches. The nations it heals are ostensibly the Adamic nations, those nations of Genesis 10. So the tree of life is Christ and his race. He being the root, he is Yahweh come in the flesh. And his race are the Adamic race which he planted in the garden. The plea from Christ that the branches are nothing without him means the same thing as the exhortation that the Adamic man must cling to the tree of life. 
to his own God and to his own race in order to live forever. That's how. That's how I interpret the tree of life. It's Christ and his race, the vine and the branches, the tree and the twelve manners of fruit, the twelve tribes of Israel. Then, in Revelation chapter 12, we see Satan and the serpent and the fallen angels which rebelled from God, an entire race cast out of heaven. And it is manifest that the serpent is the representative of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is already in the garden as soon as Yahweh had planted the Adamic man. So this tree must be an allegory for that race which rebelled and was cast out of heaven on earth even before Adam was created. Now to discuss the implications, which J.R. Dumelo almost hit on when, when he quoted from 1 Corinthians 15, 22, where Paul said, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive meaning all of the Adamic race. There are plants here, bastard slips, which Yahweh did not plant. And of those, Christ said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. Where it is clear that plants are an allegory for people, or races of people. But as it says in the wisdom of Solomon, Through envy of the devil they came death into the world. And as the Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. If the works of the devil are to be destroyed, then the entire corruption of God's creation must be destroyed. And every Adamic man which was ever created must have eternal life, as Paul of Tarsus professed, since, as it also says in the Wisdom of Solomon, that God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Aside from all of the carnal concerns in relation to sin and death, this is what the scripture ultimately teaches. So with that understanding of the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the fate of every plant which Yahweh did not plant, which is from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the fate of all of those of the tree of life, with that understanding, perhaps we could really understand Scripture, and we will continue, where Clifton continues to speak of some of the idioms of Genesis chapter 3. What was it that Eve did eat? And what did Eve touch? And in reference to the word eat, the word akal, Strong's number 398, to eat, and as Clifton says, also to lay, or to lay with somebody having sexual relations. Genesis 3.13, And Yahweh said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And Clifton, in order to support his definition, that the word can also mean to have a sexual relationship, to lay with someone, quotes Proverbs chapter 30, verse 20, where it says, Such is the way of an adulterous woman. 
She eats and wipes her mouth, which Clifton sees as an idiom for the sexual organ, and says, I have done no wickedness. And then, quoting another passage of Proverbs, chapter 9, verse 17, Stolen waters are sweet, and bread eaten. And the word eaten is added there, but it's fully implied by the presence of the word bread. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. And Clifton cites George Lamza, where he says that this is an idiom. Making love to another woman in secret appears to be pleasant. And Clifton says, note the word eat of Genesis 3.13 is the same for Edith of Proverbs chapter 30. Or in chapter 9, the word eaten is implied. But it stands nevertheless because of the presence of the word bread. And then Clifton moves on to the word touch, the Hebrew word naga, to touch. And Clifton insists that it also means to have sexual intercourse. And he quotes Genesis 3, verse 3, But the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And to show that naga can mean can be an idiom used to represent sexual intercourse, he quotes from Genesis chapter 26, from verses 10 and 11. And to Abimelech said, What is this that thou hast done unto us? One of, the might, one of the people might lightly have lain with thy wife. This is Abimelech, and he's speaking to Isaac, I believe. I'm sorry, he's speaking to Abraham. Yes, he's speaking to Abraham in Genesis chapter 26, when Abraham had Sarah. What is this thou hast done unto us, Abimelech says to Abraham? One of the people might lightly have lined with thy wife, and thou shouldest have brought guiltiness upon us. And Abimelech charged all his people, saying, he that touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And then Clifton quotes another similar scripture using the word touch in a similar way. Genesis chapter 20, verse 6. And Yahweh said unto him, Abimelech, in a dream, Yeah, I know that thou did this in the integrity of thy heart. For I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her referring to Sarah. And Clifton quotes a third scripture supporting the fact that this word touch can be an idiom for sexual intercourse. Proverbs chapter 6 verse 29. So he that goes into his neighbor's wife, whosoever touches her shall not be innocent. And Clifton says that the word touch in Genesis 3.3 is the same word as that in Genesis 26, 11, Genesis 20, verse 6, and Proverbs 6, 29. And I may have been right about Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis 26. I think this similar accounts happened to both Abraham and Isaac during their travels. In conclusion, Clifton says both the words eat and touch can have sexual connotations when they are in that context, 
And of course they can. And Clifton says, now for some remarks from some various commentaries on these passages which contain the words touch and eat as used in Genesis chapter 3 verse 3. Matthew Poole's commentary on the Holy Bible on the word touch of Genesis 26.11. And being applied to a woman, it is used for a defiling or humbling of her. Quoting the same two passages Clifton quoted, citing those same two passages, Genesis 20, verse 6, and Proverbs 6.29. And then he quotes the Adam Clark commentary on the Bible, where it speaks of the word touch in Genesis 26.11. He that touches, <coughs> he who injures Isaac or defiles Rebekah shall certainly die for it. And then quoting Matthew Poole's commentary on the Bible on the word touch of Proverbs 6.29. He that goes into his neighbor's wife that lies with her, as the phrase signifies, citing several other passages from Genesis chapters 19 and 29. He that touches her, i.e. has carnal knowledge of her, as this word is used in Genesis chapter 20 verse 6, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in Terence, the Latin poet, I believe, and other writers shall not be innocent, shall be punished as a malefactor, either by God or man. And quoting the interpreter's Bible on the word touch in Proverbs 6.29, there is no escape from the dire punishment that awaits the man who indulges in illicit love. So the interpreter's Bible where it says, so that he that goeth into his neighbor's wife, whosoever touches her shall not be innocent, understands that touch there means illicit sexual intercourse. And quoting Matthew Poole's commentary on the Holy Bible, on the word eat of Proverbs chapter 30, verse 20, such, so secret and undiscernible, is the way of the adulterous woman, of her who, through though she can be called and accounted a maid, yet in truth is an adulteress, not a common strumpet, meaning a whore, for of such the following words are not true, but one that secretly lives in the sin of adultery or fornication. She eats, to wit, the bread of deceit in secret, by which is understood the act of filthiness, meaning unwanted meaning untoward sexual intercourse. And they cite Proverbs chapter 9 and chapter 20, which such vile persons do as greedily desire and as delightfully feed upon as hungry persons do upon bread. And finally, Clifton quoting the Adam Clark's commentary on the Bible on the word eat of Proverbs 9.17. Stolen waters are secret. I'm sorry, stolen waters are sweet. I suppose this to be a proverbial mode of expression, importing that illicit pleasures are sweeter than those which are legal, referring to illicit sexual intercourse. Now, in my opinion, a lot of these so-called non-seed liners are well-meaning, but still see the Genesis account on the level of children never having matured in their views, and usually have an unhealthy and naive altruism towards the non-white races, 
even imagining for them to be people. Clifton wrote this paper in August of 2001. It was not until 2006, however, that I had read the Epic of Gilgamesh for the first time. As soon as I read it, I realized the implications of some of its language in relation to the Genesis account, and I wrote a paper titled Shemitic Idioms and Genesis Chapter 3. When I wrote that paper, I only wanted to augment the things that Clifton had spoke of here. So I didn't really get into eat and touch and things of that nature, these other words, know, in, in the sense of sexual relations, to know somebody. I didn't get into that because I only wanted to augment Clifton's word, Clifton's work on the matter, and, and sooner or later I will probably expand that paper to make an all-encompassing essay on Shemitic idioms in Genesis chapter 3, and it's probably necessary at some point in the near future. I cannot present all of Shemitic idioms and Genesis chapter 3 here, but the ancient poem, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is believed to have been written not long before the time of Abraham, contain lines such as, she shall pull off her clothing, laying bare her ripeness, and he possessed her ripeness, and once he possessed her ripeness, now he had wisdom, broader understanding, and it was said of him that thou art wise, become like a god. And this is all in a story of sexual desire and seduction, very much like the account of Genesis chapter 3. And just as Jeffrey Weekly had denied of Genesis chapter 3, the Epic of Gilgamesh follows along the same lines. It's a story of sexual seduction and illicit sexual intercourse, which was simply written in a nice manner, with idioms, instead of being blunt about the actions. There should be no doubt that the sin of Genesis chapter 3 was fornication and that fornication caused the fall of Adam and Eve. Clinging to the tree of life is the keeping of the law of Yahweh, which is kind after kind, clinging to one's own race, because the original sin was mingling with a different race, along with the recognition that only Yahweh can save us from death, which is through Yahshua Christ. As he said, I am the vine, and without me, ye can do nothing. That'll conclude our presentation of Clifton Emmeheiser's special notices to all who, de who deny two seed line part five. Tomorrow night, we have Arthur Lee, I pray, I pray that I wrote the scripts correctly Tuesday morning. We have Arthur Lee and Quest for Destiny. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.
Don't you know that? 